Well, I, what a passage of scripture we have today, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is a very famous Bible verse. Before we get there, I'm thinking this week as I was prepping for this sermon about this episode of a TV show. So in the fourth season of, uh, of the NBC workplace comedy, Parks and Recreation, has anyone watched Parks and Rec? Yeah, okay, I've got some nods, some people. I loved Parks and Rec, watched it when I was in seminary instead of studying sometimes. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> I love Parks and Rec. Um, in, in the fourth season, there's this episode called The Debate. And the main character, Leslie Nope, she assembles a team of people from within her office to help her run for a local political office. And uh, Chris Traeger and his girlfriend, Anne, or I don't think they're dating at the time, but anyways, Chris and Anne are the official spin team. If anything bad happens, it is their job to spin it, to become something good. Chris is this eternally positive person. Like, he's, it's almost sickening at times, right? Like, he runs everywhere. He's always smiling. And when they announce the different jobs, he's, of course, extremely pleased with the opportunity. And he says, this is the best possible job for me. I can literally make anything sound positive. So one of the other more jaded members of the team says, your house just burned down and you lost all of your money in the stock market. Without missing a beat, Chris goes, it's a chance to start over. Fire is cleansing and true wealth is measured by the amount of love in your life. Later on in the episode, another character comes up to him and says, Chris, hypothetical crisis, their candidate, Leslie, she tried to answer a question in the debate, but instead she audibly passed gas and then threw up. Again, without missing a beat, Chris says, Leslie Nope is literally overflowing with good ideas for this town. And speaking of methane, have you heard about her plan to limit greenhouse gas emissions? <laughs> At one point, he has an aside to the camera where he said, if I had to have anyone give bad news to me at the doctor's office, I would want it to be me. Have you ever met anybody like Chris? Obviously not. He's a TV character. He's larger than life. But somebody who consistently, sometimes frustratingly, refuses to see the negative. Someone who believes that there is a nugget of positive in every negative, and it's their job to find it. It can be a lot of fun when you're not the one who's suffering, right? <laughs> when you're not the one who's suffering that they are making light of. I can sometimes have a hard time interacting with folks like this. Because the truth is that sometimes life is hard. And in spite of, of authors like, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and The Power of Positive Thinking, or Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, or James Allen and As a Man Thinketh, despite what they have to say on the matter, sometimes the hard things in life are not just an attitude problem, right? Like, things can just be wrong. As Christians, we believe, right? We believe in a good, loving God. We believe in grace and healing, but we also believe in sin, like, we believe that, that Jesus' work was finished on the cross, but also that the story isn't finished yet. And it's not finished because we have a gracious God who, to quote First Timothy, he, he desires that all might be saved. So time moves forward in this not yet finished world as God continues to present people with opportunities to receive his love. But that leaves us in a world where things are still not 
finished. Things are still not as they should be. So as someone who's experienced chronic health difficulties and and who as a pastor has borne witness to some pretty intense pain and hardship in the lives of people that I love and care for, I can have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the Chris Treggers who, in response to deep pain and difficulty, can sometimes respond with trite comments, like telling someone who's lost a loved one that it's all a part of God's good plan. Or someone who finds themselves in this seemingly impossible situation that they must be extra strong because God couldn't, wouldn't give them something that they couldn't handle. To which that person would obviously say, if this is what being strong gets me, I don't want to be strong. Make me weak and get me out of this pain. When people do this, when we think, when we think our job as Christians is to become God's spin team, It's called something. It's called spiritual bypassing. And it can be really harmful. It's just when when we use our faith as a way to avoid thinking about or dealing with the difficult things in our lives or in the lives of others. It can be really problematic. And at first glance, as a knee-jerk reaction, it can seem like Paul and Timothy are like competing for Chris Traeger's spot on the spin team in this section of the letter to Philippians, right? Like, hey, friends in Philippi, I know that you heard that I'm in prison, but actually, when you think about it, it's really a good thing. (laughs) But of course, there's more to the story here. See, Paul and Timothy are not spiritually bypassing because they are not ignoring the current circumstances. They're not refusing to acknowledge that there's hardship going, that they're going through. That's the thing that makes spiritual bypassing dangerous. Seeing the thread of, of, of seeing that that the, the seeing the thread of good in the midst of bad isn't a bad thing. It's refusing to see the negative that makes it problematic, right? And Paul and Timothy are not doing that. Instead, what they are doing is leaning on a deeply Christian idea, which is rooted in the cross of Jesus and reshapes the way that they see the entire world around them. In this section of Philippians, Paul is really showing us his faith in action when it comes to redemption. What do I mean when I say redemption? Let me give you an example that was probably playing through Paul's head, bumping around in there as he was thinking about his own circumstance in prison. In the very first book of the Bible, this is a theme, it's from the beginning to the end of the Bible, redemption. In the very first book, we hear the story of Joseph, the 11th and favorite son of Jacob. He was kind of arrogant and proud, right? He's the favorite son. He kind of rubs it in his brother's faces. I had a dream that you're all going to bow down to me someday, (laughs) right? And then he gets this nice coat, and they're all jealous of him. And one day, that catches up with him. And his jealous brother's sell him off into slavery. But he makes the best of it as a slave, and he rises to prominence in a house where he was working in Egypt, only to be falsely accused of something and to be thrown in prison. But he makes the best of it in prison, and eventually he's released and brought into the house of Pharaoh. He interprets some dreams. He ends up the second in command for all of Egypt. And then there's this big famine that comes. 
And Joseph helps to make sure that Egypt is prepared, right? That was the dream interpretation. And as a result of this, many, many, many lives are saved. We know the story. He ends up reunited with his family. His father is still alive. He saves them. He brings them into Egypt. He gives them food and land and all of that. And if you don't know the story from the Bible, maybe you know it from the musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, great musical. Um, <laughs> but there was a part that they left out in the musical, right? Right at the end of the story. And to be honest, it, I think it's my favorite part of the whole story. Joseph gets time together with his family in Egypt, but his father is quite old. And eventually, his father passes away. And I'll, I'll actually, I'll read the story here out of the message translation. So this is from Genesis chapter 50, starting at verse 14. So after burying his father, Joseph went back to Egypt. And all of his brothers who had come with him to bury his father returned with him. And after the funeral, Joseph's brothers talked among themselves. What if Joseph is carrying a grudge and decides to pay us back for all of the wrong that we did him? Dad's not around anymore to protect the brothers, right? They're worried. What might happen? We sold him into slavery. We, we were the reason he ended up living in prison for so long. Away from his family, abandoned, right? Rejected, alone. So they sent Joseph a message. This is verse 16. And this is the message. He said, before his death, your father gave this command. Tell Joseph, forgive your brothers. Sin and all of that wrongdoing... They did treat you very badly. Will you do it? Will you forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God? When Joseph received their message, he wept. Then the brothers went in person to him. They threw themselves on the ground before him and said, we'll be your slaves. Right? Here's the retributive justice. We, we made you become a slave. Now we'll become slaves. It's only fair. Right? And Joseph replied, don't be afraid. Do I act for God? Don't you see? You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. What you intended for evil, God has used for good. As you see around, all around you right now, life for many people easy now. You have nothing to fear. I'll take care of you and your children. He reassured them, speaking with them heart to heart. You planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for good. This idea that God can take things that were intended for evil and continue the story on in such a way that good comes out of them, this is what we call redemption. It doesn't just bypass the hard part in the middle. It doesn't take the bad thing and all of a sudden spin it around so it becomes good. Joseph lived through those parts of the story. Like, the, the bad choices of his brothers don't all of the, or other bad actors in the story, they don't all of a sudden become good. Selling your brother into slavery is never a good thing. Kids aren't up here. I should have. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no matter what the eventual outcome is, it doesn't make that thing good. It's still bad. It's evil. Redemption doesn't mean that stops being evil. It just so happens, though, that we serve a God who can take even the most evil thing 
and bring out of that something that is good. Think about the story of Jesus. God took a tortuous, shame-filled form of public execution, one of the worst things that humans have been able to dream up. God used that as his way to bring about our salvation. In a Greek and Roman society, like, you didn't talk about crucifixion in polite company. Now, we hang crosses in our churches and around our necks as symbols of God's great love. This is what our God can do. It is what he has been doing since the beginning of the story all the way till now and beyond. Redemption is a central idea in the story of the Bible and the central idea of the passage that we're exploring today in Philippians. Paul comes at it through, through three different stories, three different aspects of his story, but the emphasis is the same each time. Others intended something for evil, but our God is so good that he can take even the worst thing and bring something good. So the first situation, he's in prison, right? He mentions that at the beginning of the passage, he's, he's riding from in chains. He's actually been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. Now, we don't know all of the details here, but it, it becomes clear that Paul has been arrested and imprisoned because of the evangelistic work that he was doing in Rome. And this could be a huge blow to the church in that area, right? Like, to the mission of God. Because people might become afraid and become silent. But listen to how Paul talks about it. He begins with this phrase, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. But Paul isn't ignoring his current circumstance. He is still in chains. But he's sharing the news with the Philippian church, who no doubt would already know that he was in chains and would have already been concerned for him. And he lets them know, these people, the people who have put him in chains, they wanted to shut down the message of the gospel, so they've imprisoned me. But the exact opposite is happening. People are growing more bold. And he has a captive audience, right? The guards are required to watch him. They can't get away. So he gets to share with them all day in and day out about the gospel, and many are coming to faith as a result. He isn't locked in there with them. They're locked in there with him. And what these authorities intended for evil, God is already using for good. This is the first circumstance, and Paul is already seeing redemption at work in that part of the story, right in front of his eyes. A bad thing has happened. He's in prison. God is already using it for good. And we hear overtones of joy in this letter because there is nothing more beautiful than seeing our pain reshaped and redeemed, right? Nothing better than having meaning grow out of something that just felt empty, than having hope shoot out, shoot up, where there seemed to only be death. Paul is emboldened by this, and it leads us to the next circumstance. Now, this one is ongoing, and it doesn't seem like the fruit of redemption is really springing up in the same way. People in the church there are getting into power struggles. They're jockeying for position. Some of them are preaching the gospel and sharing about Jesus, not because they love Jesus, but because they want to build their own platforms. 
It's a way to gain status. And understandably, this is problematic for the church. Now, we wouldn't know anything about that today in our day of social media and megachurches, right? <laughs> Look what Paul says. Um, this is verse 18, Philippians 1.18. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Is infighting and power struggles a good thing? Of course not. But Paul's primary concern is that the gospel is preached, and it is. And, and if God chooses to use selfish and power-hungry people to share that message, so be it. Throughout the whole story of the Bible, he has used not very nice people, right, to bring about his purpose for the church. And he can do it here too. But this is where Paul, uh, will this be without problems? Of course not, right? But this is where Paul leans on the first experience of God redeeming what seems to be unredeemable. And many more experiences like this, I'm sure that he has had in his life thus far. And, and this serves as the basis for his hope for God's redemption moving forward. This one reminds me a little bit, um, and maybe some of you listened to, uh, during COVID, there was a podcast on Christianity Today that like blew up called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. And it follows the story of Mars Hill Church and its lead pastor at the time, Mark Driscoll. And it, it was a meteoric rise and a very dramatic fall. There were a lot of terrible things that happened there. Many people were hurt, controlling, manipulative things done in the name of Jesus. Some of the stories are just harrowing. And yet, as you listen through this podcast and people share their stories, you also hear from people who met Jesus and had their lives changed as a result of their time in that broken and ugly place. And it doesn't make any of the bullying or the spiritual abuse okay, but it does go to show how good our God is. That even in those places, fighting against the ambition and ego of a narcissistic leader, he can bring about good. Paul is encouraging the people in Philippi not to ignore the bad things that are happening in Rome where he's imprisoned, but to trust that the God who brought good out of his prison stay can also bring good out of the teachings even of these selfish people. And in the third and final example in the passage, Paul doubles down on this idea. It really culminates in this, this famous verse, Philippians 1.21, where he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And a lot of people talk about this, right? Like this is Paul's life mission. We talked about this idea last week, that, that everything in this book, in, this, in, in Paul's writing, everything is in, of, by, and for Christ. And there's a whole sermon on like just that verse, and, and I don't know, maybe we'll get there at some point in our series in Philippians, but the thing that really struck me as I read this verse again this week in this, in this framework, thinking about how this whole passage is talking about redemption was that Paul isn't just explaining his life's mission. He's also showing the church in Philippi, who is no doubt concerned for him in his current circumstances. 
He is showing them how far his belief in God's ability to redeem all things goes. He's not spiritually bypassing. He acknowledges that he might not make it out of here alive. But he still believes that God can bring good out of it. Even out of his death, no matter what direction this story takes, God can bring out good. And church, this is the gospel, right? Like, death no longer has the final say. This is why the resurrection was so important. It shows us that there is nothing that our God cannot overcome. But it doesn't leave out the reality that sometimes we will not get to see the ending of those stories. Sometimes something senseless happens, we endure some unimaginable pain, and we don't ever get a look behind the veil to see the whole picture. But we can have hope. Not that we'll be delivered out of suffering and nothing bad will ever happen to us and it'll all make sense in the end. We don't live in a perfect world. The story's not over yet. That just doesn't seem to be how God works. But we can still have hope that if we are brave, and it takes a great deal of bravery, Paul even writes about having sufficient courage as he leads up to that bold statement to live as Christ and to die as gain. But this is what I really believe, that if we are brave, our God is a God who can bring good out of even the worst parts of our stories. He is a God of redemption. We see it from the start of Scripture to the end. It is what he does. We aren't promised that we won't suffer, but we can trust that our suffering does not need to be in vain. It doesn't need to be without purpose. And while I I don't believe that God is the author of our suffering, he can absolutely be the redeemer of it. Church, I think this work of turning things around is some of God's best stuff. And it's the kind of thing that only he can do. But Paul's not joking when he says it takes sufficient courage. I'm, I'm reminded of another story of Paul and, the, and, and redemption in the book of 2 Corinthians when he talks about the thorn in his flesh. First, he prayed to be delivered from it. Then, he prayed again to be delivered from it. And then he prayed again to be delivered from it. And finally, he asked God, is there a way that you can redeem this, right? And God reminded him, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul lived with that reminder of how God works, and it helped him in his ministry. Doesn't mean that it was always pleasant or that he was never frustrated by it, but God brought good out of the evil. Church, that is what our God does. He is a God of redemption. And I am so, so grateful. Let's respond to that truth in worship today. I invite you to stand. Church, what good news that we serve a God who redeems. 
I don't know where you're at. I don't know your stories. I don't know where you might need that redemption. But this is the invitation. If we're brave, if we can, if we can lay our burdens down, that he will take them up. That he can bring good out of even the worst of our stories. Go today in the peace and the hope of that truth. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.